Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air. This podcast is dedicated to the millions of family caregivers who want wellness tips and self-care solutions, who seek expert advice, and who want news about healthy aging and how to create well-home design in our forever homes. I'm Sherry Snelling, a corporate gerontologist, author, and educator, a TV interviewer, host, and news commentator. I'm joining you from Southern California, where our interviews and news take us all across the country to explore the many ways to help you on your caregiving journey and to lift you up here at Caregiving Club On Air. Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air and our episode on Sandwich Generation Month, Self-Care Day, Serenby Wellness Living, and Summer Travel, How to Go from Staycations to Wellcations. I'm Sherry Snelling, your host, and as I mentioned, July is National Sandwich Generation Month, so we're going to talk about the special challenges that caregivers who are caring for both children under the age of 18 while simultaneously caring for older parents or grandparents, what are the challenges that you're facing and how can we help you find a little bit more me time? And one of our great interviews for this episode is going to be with Steve Nygren, who is the founder and CEO of Serenby, which is a community outside of Atlanta that is a wellness community focused around what we love, which is biophilic design, which means love of life and love of nature. I think you're going to really love this interview with Steve. And so for our caregiver wellness news, as I mentioned, how do the sandwich generation caregivers find self-care for International Self-Care Day on July 24th? We're going to give you some tips and hints and resources on how to do that. And then our well-honed design news, since we're talking about summer travel, we're going to tell you about a couple of things you may not know about. One is called respitality, which might be a term you've heard of before. And we're also going to talk about some of the new services that are coming around for older adults who aren't necessarily physically able to travel anymore. And so it's virtual travel for our older population. And I think you're going to find some of these things really interesting and definitely creative ideas for how to help our older loved ones stay engaged and feel like they're traveling, even if they're not leaving the comfort of their own home and their couch. And then finally, our Me Time Monday wellness hack is coming at the end of the episode. And for National Forest Month, which is July 11th through the 18th, we're going to focus on the color green, which is part of our 2022 year of living colorfully theme. And we think you're going to find it really interesting how green makes us healthier and happier. So with that, let's go to our caregiver wellness news. So for our caregiver wellness news, as I mentioned, July is National Sandwich Generation Month. And you may be asking yourselves, who is the sandwich generation? So as I mentioned in our intro, the sandwich generation really is defined as those family caregivers who are caring for two generations on either side of them simultaneously. So this means that you've probably got children under the age of 18 or maybe even children who have moved back from college, but they're still under your roof. Basically, you're still taking care of them as well as older parents or maybe grandparents or another loved one. And according to the National Alliance for Caregiving, and I think their latest report and statistics on caregiving in the U.S., it was identified that about 24 million Americans, maybe a little bit more, 
are caring for two generations at the same time. So those are sandwich generation caregivers. And there was another study that was done that said more than one in 10 parents in the U.S., so these are parents who have younger children, are also caring for an older adult. And they're spending on average about three hours a day on their caregiving duties, whether that's children or, again, caring for parents or older parents or an older loved one. And so we know that during the pandemic, the intensity of caregiving really took an upswing. Obviously, this was because a lot of the sandwich generation caregivers were homeschooling children and needing to come up with activities for them, even though we were all kind of sheltering in place and a lot of sporting events and things were shut down. So we needed to come up with all these different activities. And then simultaneously, because we have older parents or grandparents that we're caring for, we were worried about those that may be you know, living at home, maybe they were alone or just their safety and whether or not we could visit with them. And, you know, what were the precautions that we needed to take because we knew our older, you know, population was more vulnerable to the virus, at least initially. Or if your loved one lived in assisted living or a memory care community, then again, your stresses were around the fact that you were isolated from the loved ones because they were on lockdown, not allowing any visitors trying to make the connections through video chat, but let's face it, that's helpful. And I want to say that technology is great and really played a big role in at least keeping us together a little bit during the pandemic, but we know it doesn't really replace that in-person, being able to hug somebody, pat their hand, have that conversation where you're staring into their eyes. So all of these stressors were kind of coming together during the pandemic. And now that we're coming out of this pandemic, the stressors are still kind of there, you know, the anxiety and some of the issues that we were facing and some of the changes that we know we have to make in our lives are still kind of things that we're figuring out. So I came across this study and I wanted to read this to you because I thought it was really interesting. It was really, and, and to me, it speaks exactly to family caregivers in general, but I think also certainly the sandwich generation, because we know there's there's usually a little bit more heightened stress when you're a sandwich generation caregiver, again, because you've got the two generations needing so much of your attention and focus. So this study said that most Americans are suffering from what they call the self-care shortage. Now, we know that on average, Americans are getting about 40 minutes of their waking daytime where they're feeling relaxed, where they aren't feeling any kind of stress. They aren't worried about, you know, decisions and responsibilities and, you know, things at work, things with family or whatever, about 40 minutes a day. That's not too bad. But when you think about it, it's like, wow. So that means that, you know, if we're taking our waking hours, which is about 16 hours, that means that we're spending what, 15 hours and 20 minutes being stressed. So if you flip that on the other side, it's like, no, that's not, those aren't good numbers. And then the study also showed that almost half of the people in the study, so about 47% reported that they're actually getting less than the 40 minutes. Now that seems reasonable. And I think certainly for family caregivers, that would probably, they would probably fall into that bucket. You know, I talked to so many family caregivers across the country and many of them are, are telling me, I can't even find five minutes during the day to think about myself and feel that stress relief. It's just on me all the time, weighing me down. And so we're here to help. That's why we're here talking to you to give you some tips and things that we know are happening. So the reason why I bring the study up is because International Self-Care Day is July 24th. Now, we're also going to have National Self-Care Month. I think that's coming up August, September, so you can look forward to a little bit more around this. But 
International Self-Care Day is July 24th. So at least on that day, maybe we could do something to think about ourselves. Now, what's interesting about self-care is it's very personal, as we all know. It's defined very differently by everybody. And it could be anything from maybe it's taking a walk outside. In fact, about 33% of the people in this particular study said that's their self-care routine is getting a little bit of walking in. But it can also be something like, you know, reading a book or, you know, streaming your favorite television show, listening to a podcast or some music, maybe doing some meditation, anything I think that feeds your soul. And, you know, it's really about that inner reflection of what makes us feel happy, what gives us that lift so that we don't feel that boulder on our shoulder of stress and anxiety and even maybe depression when we're caring for loved ones who may be battling, you know, a a tough disease like cancer or Alzheimer's or whatever it is. If we can find just a few minutes a day to relieve ourselves of all of those stressors and that intensity, we obviously know this has a huge impact on health. I think I've talked to you before about the telomere effect, which is you're literally taking days, weeks, months, years off your life with chronic stress that you're not managing. So we need to give you a little relief, a little break. The other thing that the study found, so self-care is very personal. I can't tell you what your self-care is. You've got to figure that out yourself. But again, anything that nourishes your soul, that would be my definition of self-care. Now, the other thing that we know is the obstacles to getting there and doing your self-care routine are money and motivation. Okay, totally agree with that. Um, I think, you know, most of us know it's it's tough to kickstart that motivation, particularly again, when we're overwhelmed. And also sometimes the things that we for nourish our soul, you know, right now we're all kind of feeling the crunch in our wallets, you know, the, the dollar seems to be shrinking every day. So we want to take those obstacles away. And one of the things that, you know, I just want to let you guys know, I think you know that if you're listening to this podcast regularly, the Me Time Monday program that I've come up with, we do the wellness hacks at the end of each of our podcast episodes. That gives you like a anywhere from a five to 10 minute little training course on how to think about wellness, how to think about self-care and me time. And what we try to do is focus on things that one, don't cost anything. So, you know, getting outside and taking a walk in, in a natural nature type environment where you can, you know, smell the fresh air and see trees or feel the, you know, the sand in your toes, if you have to be in a beach or coastal area uh, or whatever it is, that really doesn't cost any money. And those are the kinds of tips and things that we're trying to give to you so that we can make it easy. And then the other thing I would say is don't necessarily plan your self-care around something that's going to take you like an hour to do. Now, if you binge watch a TV show or even happen to get yourself out to the movies now that the theater's back open, certainly that's going to be a little bit longer than five minutes. But I really believe that if we do this right, that our self-care routines should be about five, seven, 10 minutes daily. Because one of the things you don't want to think about is you don't want it to become so much of an obstacle, so tough to do that you just put it off and put it off and put it off, and then you never get to it. And this is where we see, again, the emotional burnout, the things that caregivers tell us is because they're they're putting off their me time and their self-care routines. So we want to make it simple. We want to make it as cost-free as possible. And, and really, we want to make it short. And that's what Me Time Monday is all about. We help you learn how to do things like habit stacking, mini steps, what we call mini steps or baby steps, 
you know, how to find some of the things that will motivate you. We know that the Monday in the Me Time Monday program, by the way, people are 54% more successful at doing a self-care routine if they think about it and kind of plan it on a Monday. It doesn't mean you have to do it on Monday. It just simply means that you think about it and you go, okay, during this week, how am I going to get those few minutes a day, or at least a few minutes this week to do something for me. So, you know, there's a lot that more that goes into that. That's going to be part of my upcoming book, Me Time Monday, the weekly wellness edit for a wonderful life. And again, it's part of our workshops that you can check out on our website at caregivingclub.com. So with all of this conversation about wellness, I want to now turn to one of the best interviews I think that we've done for this podcast, which is with Steve Nygren, who was somebody new to me. I came across Serenby which was the community that Steve founded. And it's because they talked about Serenby as being a biophilic community. And you guys know, I've talked about this before. I love biophilia. This is like my new favorite term. And biophilia is a Greek word that means love of life, love of nature. And so what Steve has created is this wonderful wellness community and neighborhoods that are about 30 miles outside of Atlanta in the beautiful Chattahoochee Hills and the forest area there. And what I love that he's going to tell us about is he's trying to give us back the kind of wellness foundation that we had in America 50 and 100 years ago, where we lived in smaller communities and people really were there to support each other. And we were out in nature more and enjoying that. And so he's almost tried to reverse ourselves a little bit and giving us that wellness sense back, which we know does calm us and does help our stressors. And he's going to explain it much better than I do. So let's get to it. Here is my interview with Steve Nygren of Serenby. Steve, I am so thrilled to have you be interviewed today and tell us a little bit more about um, Serenby and how the concept really got started. It was really a result of my concern about our country farm being destroyed with development. We were very urban people living in Atlanta, and we found this farm just on a weekend whim, a drive to show the daughters farm animals. And it was a historic farm that we were for sale, but I had clarified that we weren't interested in buying anything. And of course, anyone with something for sale says, come on. And when we arrived, this Shetland pony was saddled and we bought the farm that afternoon. Oh, my gosh. A pony will do it, particularly with little girls, right? (laughs) How how could you say no? And uh, I I envisioned that we would uh, come out maybe a couple Saturdays a a month. And so we leased the historic farmhouse out. And my wife fixed a shack in the back in case we ever wanted to spend the night. And my surprise, it was where the entire family wanted to spend every weekend. And doing that weekend trek for three years, it was a value shift for me. A lot about what people have gone through this last two years in the pandemic would relate to what I was going through and really reanalyzing what was important. As I look back, I felt I was on the treadmill of life. I was I was just going faster and faster, and the scenery was looking the same. And we weren't making any major changes, no matter what board I was on or what we were trying to do. And I thought, you know, my children now are at that time, six, eight and 10. And I'm only going to have this chance once. So I decided to sell my company. We sold the big house in the city. Uh, I resigned from most boards 
And we literally stepped off the treadmill and put in the organic garden, you know, bought lots of animals and life was fabulous. And in my sixth year of retirement, we became concerned about urban sprawl. And I did sort of the natural thing and started buying more land. I was going to buy my protection. And at 900 acres, I realized if you're in the path of urban sprawl, 900 acres, it doesn't change it. That's, that's just like you're a, an island in a zoo, right? You know. And so we started looking at what we could do. And Ray Anderson uh, was a dear friend. Ray uh, founded Interface Carpet and was uh, the first U.S. industrialist to put his company on a carbon neutral footprint and path in, in, in the 90s. And Ray uh, was the first chair of the White House Council on the Environment in the 90s. And so one night at dinner, I said, Ray, you know all the smart people on, in the environment and, and preservation. Who, who should I talk to to help me figure out how we can keep this area from being destroyed? And in September of 2000, Ray asked the Rocky Mountain Institute to assemble thought leaders. And so there we were 20 some years ago now with really the thought leaders, whether it was agricultural, land use, energy. Now, to put it in perspective, that's before LEED certification was in place. In that recent history, we have come a long way when you really think about it as far as awareness. You know, we still have a lot to do as far as practice. I was not looking at that point to be a developer. I wanted to just save my backyard. And Ray, over the course of the next year, as we looked at other people that were doing it, because none of the people they brought in were developers, or they were applying these concerns to the actual land. And somehow I stood up during that and realized that, that we had to do this. There had to be an example to show that this wasn't crazy stuff. In fact, as I was realizing, this is no different than we had communities before World War II. This wasn't new ideas. These were bringing back old ideas as far as having a farm next to where you lived and organic. I mean, you know, that, that that's the way farming was prior to, uh, to the 40s. Well, and I love that part of your story. And I, and I have heard you even talk about this is kind of the founding of America, right? Where we were living in multi-generational kind of communities or homes. And as you said, we were more in nature and one with nature. So what I love about when I came across Serenby is that you actually describe it as a biophilic community. And that's my new favorite term, by the way. <laughs> I'm doing a lot of research and a lot of work in that area, but tell me how you define biophilic community and what that means in Serenby. Absolutely. Of course, when we started this and I had these ideas, development friends, we had a lot of friends and, and leadership and real estate people, they all were convinced that, that I had really lost it in my retirement, that this was kind of going to, that I was naive and thinking what I could do in the development world. So we sort of just tucked our heads in and, and just kept doing. And we found the market was, was much more ready for us. We were selling everything we could put on the ground. And then 2008 hit. And that recession was challenging for everyone. So we lived through that recession. And we started stepping out of it earlier than most. And we found that the analysts that wouldn't even take any of these concepts seriously were discovering that walkable communities and environmental communities were some of the first to step out of the recession. So suddenly people started showing up 
to see what Serenby was all about, because at that point we're, we're in, you know, eight, 10 years. And people were wanting to identify us as a new urbanist community. And we are, but new urbanist communities aren't necessarily environmental. We were the beginning of the agrihoods. That was sort of coined that term when a New York Times reporter was doing a story on us and she called us an agrihood. And there is now an agrihood movement. And the Urban Land Institute refers to us as, you know, we're the beginning of that. And then we're in the Urban Land Institute's top 10 environmental communities. Now, dense or have commercial or have farms, you know, and so we're the only one that are in the top 10 of those three. And so everyone wants to have a, a tag. Who are you? And so I started looking at it. And back in that original Rocky Mountain Institute charrette, we talked about biophilic design. Bill Browning, the real leader in that, as in Stephen Kelbert was uh, teaching at Yale courses, Tim Beatley at the University of Virginia. But it was, you know, E.O. Wilson had made that popular. But it really wasn't. When, when we decided we were going to call it biophilic design and, and form the Biophilic Institute, there was a lot of pushback from our people and our marketing and branding people. They said, nobody knows how to spell that. How do you pronounce it? Who is that? You know, how far that's come in the 10 years? Because it's amazing. You, 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 it's all over the place now. Biophilic design is not a strange word. It rolls off people's lips. It does. Well, and it's it's about obviously being again kind of in nature and having these natural elements, but I think also that that you know you were way ahead of this wave that we're seeing now in wellness communities and biophilic design has you know a play in that. But you know, talk to me a little bit about how you designed because you started out, I think, as a as a and b right? Like as an inn, and then it became the homes. And you talk about there's different hamlets within the larger community. Tell us a little bit about how that looks. Yes. So when we moved out here, of course, we started restoring the house. But we had our great cottage, and then we'd taken a barn for our, our city folks when they came out, and we had, you know, uh, a couple bottles of wine. We didn't want to drive it back, so, you know. But then when we restored the house, we had these two great guest houses. And suddenly, after a couple of years, I realized I had more friends than I realized, and the only way to post bed and breakfast rates. And, and then the, the paper started talking about they knew where we'd gone. We were in the woods running the bed and breakfast. So that just kind of, we stepped into it as kind of a hobby, and it was kind of fun. Then we, we decided to, to do the community. Everyone thought we were crazy, as I mentioned. And so I said, well, we'll build a townhouse because no one could imagine a townhouse in the woods, in the forest, because the girls were getting ready to head to college. And then we would turn that bed and breakfast into a full inn and, and start dinner and, and what have you. So that's kind of how that evolved. The land plan on the community is modeled after the countryside of England, because in my retirement, we went to England a lot because it, it was, you know, it was a foreign culture, but you sp still spoke English. So it was perfect for young children to kind of have that experience. And we had a dear friend that lived in a little hamlet outside London, uh, southwest of London. And so we really became familiar. And after World War II, they put good land policy in because they couldn't afford urban sprawl. The island was only so big. We were very interested in a lot of those concepts. And the Rock Institute helped me find Phil Tab, who did his doctorate on the English village system, and at the same time became a trained sacred geometrist, so understood the balance of nature. So Phil has been our land planner since the very beginning. So this is under that. Now, we had to change Georgia laws in laws within in Metro Atlanta 
And so it was quite a trick bringing English land law to a property rights Southern state. The uh, University of Georgia and Tech and Texas A&M all were instrumental in helping us form reg re regulation to where we changed both local zoning laws and state transfer development laws to make this happen. Right, which is so fantastic that you got that kind of support within the community. You know, one of the things that I also think is really exceptional about what you're doing. So we talked about biophilia and we talked about nature and kind of the eco-friendliness part of this and organic farming and all that. But you you don't, you know, some people who like me or a boomer might think, oh, you know, it kind of sounds like one of those communes back in the 60s, but you don't talk about it at all in that way. And I also think the social interaction is as equally important to the wellness aspect of your community. So tell me a little bit about how you do describe what you've built and what, what the social interaction of the residents is like. Well, here again, it goes back to the, you know, pre pre 1940s, we have eight to 10 foot front porches pulled near the sidewalk. Now this really became important in the middle of the pandemic because people could sit on their porches and still communicate with their neighbors walking by on the sidewalks and kids who a lot of this affected a lot of kids around the nation. Our kids could talk to their friends because they could, you know, be on their bicycle outside the front porches. That connectivity was there at the start. And medical research now, especially it's been, it's coming to the forefront, shows that what greatly affects our mental attitude is connecting to nature and one another. And we've been building places that separate us from both for the last 50 years. And then we wonder why antidepressants have increased fourfold each decade and the statistics aren't even in on this last decade. There's so many things that we've done that are a result of what I call rut thinking. We just keep doing the same thing without looking back at the causes that, that may not be a direct effect. You know, uh, you know, how do we change the building codes and have we put the dots together that the building codes are causing depression? This causing a huge uh, uh, sickness among our citizens and our insurance rates are crazy. We're we're not connecting the dots. Yeah, we're certainly not. And, you know, I have a question for you. There's There was a movement. There still is a movement, actually. And I know ARP has been behind this and the Milken Institute about really making our urban cities more age-friendly, you know, having age-friendly cities. So there's walkways and there is beautiful nature sites. and But there's a lot of, you know, things that you can walk to, for instance, and bringing people back into the city life. But it almost sounds like that still is isolating for a lot of people. You still don't necessarily get that sense of community that it sounds like you get at Serenby where you are part of this larger group and feel kind of, you know, connected, like you said, with so many more people. Well, it's not just about density. It's how you plan it. As I mentioned, the importance of the porches pulled close. We have all sorts of area benches and little green areas, pocket parks, if you will, all over the place. One of the key things that people talk about is we have mail stations at various places where people are going to assemble for another reason. So they'll be behind the coffee shop or next to the coffee shop by the playground, by the trampoline. People joke that it takes them two hours to get their mail at Ceremony. <laughs> 
it's the way we have designed it. It naturally brings you out of your cars. You wouldn't even think about taking your cars onto the street and you bump into people. And the coffee shops, the markets, the things that are going on, the, the arts programming, it's, it's all out and about to where you maybe aren't headed there, but, but you're distracted or someone moves. And several people have said, it's like going back to college, that spontaneity that you found on college life is what they're finding here. And, and we have top thought leaders and executives Probably our biggest influx, especially in the last two years, has been Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Now, a commune, only if you think that a place where everyone is happy is a commune. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And this may not, you know, we we find that this, it's sort of self-selecting in the fact that you can just feel the people waving at you, kids really, the birds, we don't allow air compressors, so everything's geothermal, so you don't have the busy noise of the city. And for a pessimist, it seems too good to be true, and their nose, there must be something. It must be a community of rules. People that have hope that we can live better and we can change things identify with what we're doing. And so just imagine living in a community that naturally attracts people with hope. Right. Well, and I think that hope is something that we have been lacking so much in our lives. You know, you talked a little bit about some high stress industries like Wall Street and Hollywood and entertainment, and they're all seeming to wanting to flock to Serenby. Tell me a little bit about the residents, because I know you have a real diverse age range in your residents. So are are people still maybe commuting back into the city and this is their their home outside of the city, their, you know, their sanctuary, or are they more retired and then working from home? How does, what's the resident mix look like? A couple of key things to remember. We are 40 minutes from the center city of Atlanta. Even though we feel like we're remote and in the woods, we're 40 minutes from the major, you know, employment hub of the Southeast. We're 25 minutes from the largest airport in the world that connects you to the capitals of the world. So we are so strategically located in time-wise for both of those that it makes it very easy. And especially after the pandemic, there are not that many people that are working nine to five and punching a a time clock necessarily. Uh, And so for that executive level, we're an ideal place. What we have found is home offices both in the home and then many office hubs uh, throughout the community where people can get away and they, you know, they can walk to their own desk and for conference calls and conference rooms. That whole, that whole philosophy has really changed. And, and just the people that are here, a lot of them, um, you know, we have a couple people whose office is, is still New York. They still have a New Year uh, zip code. And people don't know that they're in, not in New York, that they're at Serenade. And pre-pandemic, they were com- commuting a little bit, you know, a couple days a week. Uh, with this airport, you can do that. In fact, you know, we have people that fly to New York for lunch and they're back uh, because they're flying an hour. We're really set up in a very unique place that that can happen. Uh, so people are all ranges. We also have uh, uh, firemen. We have teachers. You know, we have rental. And, and, and uh, so we have people that are working in the restaurants. You know, the guy that has the bike shop, you know, they all live here in the midst of the community. Uh, So it's a complete range, economic, racial, sexual orientation. And 
I would think, you know, the bell curve is around 40s and 50s, but we have 20-year-old homeowners and 80-year-old homeowners. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm, I'm fascinated too by, it. it sounds like it's a kind of community, you know, I, t- I do a lot of work in universal design so that it's ageless, so that you can, you know, it can be accessible and all of that. And it sounds like, again, if you're in your 80s or 90s, you're still going to be okay in this environment. Well, absolutely. And what's more, um, as one uh, person who retired here in his 80s, he said, if I'd known I was going to be able to sit on my front porch and interact with all of these young kids, I would have paid you 20% more. (laughs) We are building a universal design campus, uh, what you would normally think of as an aging in place, age restricted, but it is across the street from our pool and our Acton Academy uh, school campus, which is three years old to, to high school. And so if you're less mobile, you can sit on your terrace or your balcony and watch all the kids coming and going and the noise. And, and, you know, somebody in the 80s who hearing isn't quite as sharp, all that noise of those kids is delightful rather than being irritating. All these are in the land plan as we think about these logical things. And here again, I go back. You know, I grew up knowing my uh, great grandparents. We didn't have senior housing uh, that we shipped people off to. We didn't put fences and have parachute parents or what do you, helicopter parents. There was interaction and just a much more natural life. And that's what we're getting back to at Serenby. Yeah. Well, I think, again, that sense of community. Um, I know Dan Bootner, who has written about the blue zones and how to live longer, even into our 100s, talks about that sense almost of, of tribe, you know, finding your people and having that sense of community is so so vital. You know, you mentioned that one of your residents, and by the way, I talked to Janice, one of your residents yesterday, who was just absolutely delightful. And uh, she's promised to invite me when I get down to Atlanta to come for a visit. So um, <laughs> you'll probably be seeing me at some point. But I, you, when you said one of your residents said he'd pay 20% more, that's one of my biggest questions. What is the average range of the homes? And it, how long is your wait list? <laughs> Our range, I think we're now in the 400s to probably a million two with, you know, some of your custom homes are certainly up into multi-million dollars. One thing to important to remember is, you know, we are in an area where there's a lot of affordable housing. That wasn't one of our tasks. Our task was to bring executive housing in to balance the tax base. So there, you know, if you can't live at Ceremony, if that's outside your price range, there's there's other housing that you can get. And, and we're not a gated community. So everything is available within, you know, within Ceremony. So and we brought art and schools and all those kinds of things. So it's a, it's a complete range. Just going back to your comment about how you lived with your grandparents. I lived with my grandparents for a period of time. I think there's something really I don't know. I'm so grateful for that time to be with them and to really learn stories about our family and all that. And I think sometimes that's lacking when we've kind of migrated away from that family life. We lose a sense of who we are. And I think also children don't get that kind of balance in being interacting with older adults. And so they don't understand aging maybe as well. And they see it as everybody sees it as a decline, decay, you know, and it's like, this is a time to thrive, right? If this is when we're hopefully wiser and we can really thrive in those last, you know, 8,000 days of life that I know Joe Coughlin talks about a lot. 
you have to live that. And I mean, two things on that. Well, my wife's aunt had dementia and we moved her into our home her last years. And so our daughters grew up with that compassion and understanding and that along with connection to nature. You talk to anyone, talk to Janice, anyone when you come down here, they're pretty well balanced. And so all of the maybe struggles and the heartaches and the, the times I thought, you know, why have I done that? The greatest reward is all three of my daughters have returned to Serenby with their Northern husbands. I love that. <laughs> and sixth due in June are all being raised right here. And I see them all the time. Right. Well, you know, just to kind of end this up, this has been such a delightful conversation, Steve, and and I really appreciate your time. Are there any, you know, it just seems to me that this whole environment really supports wellness in in such a beautiful way. Are there any anecdotal stories, either for you or for some of the residents, where you saw people who maybe didn't look as good or weren't feeling as good, and all of a sudden this became a healing space for them? Anything you can share? Let's see. I mean, there, I get stories all week. You know, what comes to mind? Two, two, two things I think about. I, you, you know, here, here a few months ago, this, this woman was sharing. She, you know, she looked great and alive. And she says, you know, I was on diets for 20 years and I finally gave up because none of them worked. I gave away my scale and stopped thinking about it. And she said, my clothes were looser than I had remembered they ever being. And I borrowed someone's scale after living here for only six months. And she says, I had lost 18 pounds. So that's eating fresh food. That's walking to the mailbox, walking to neighbors. It's not getting in a car to go everywhere. Another is, is a woman who was, she wanted just the right thing for her family. And I remember when they moved in, she was so concerned about what education, what this, what that. And I said, the best thing you can do for your family is relax. You know, all these questions you're asking about, stop worrying about, just relax. And several weeks later, uh, her husband just said, thank you. And about six months later, she said, our life's different. She said, before we moved here, I was a chauffeur getting all of our kids to just exactly the play group, the sports group, the, the, the music lessons. And she said, you know, dinner time didn't, we had just a pot on this counter because with everybody's activities, there was no time that was convenient for all of us to eat together. It's after living here, I have stopped doing all that. She says, we now have dinner every night as a family. And she says, my kids are better behaved and our marriage is much better. Oh, I love that. What a, what a great note to end on. Well, I can just tell you when I visited your website, I all of a sudden felt a sense of calm just looking at the photos of the community. So put me on the list, sign me up, you know. <laughs> I just think it's wonderful. Come on down once you feel it and smell it and experience the people that are here. The genuine sense of what's going on here is, um, it's really, uh, you notice the difference. Oh, absolutely. Well, again, Steve, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. I really appreciate it. So listening to Steve, wasn't that a great interview? And, you know, every time I look at images or hear Steve speak or look at one of the videos that they have on the Serenby website, I just feel like this is probably the most peaceful place that I've ever seen on earth and certainly a place that promotes wellness. And if you get a chance to check it out, what's really great is 
obviously Serenby is a community that you can, you know, move into and live in, but it's also, they've got a and b so there's a bed and breakfast there, you know, there's the cafe and the little community, and you can kind of test drive it, you know, even if you just want a wellcation, which I'm going to talk to you about in a minute, but you want to just get away and be in a really beautiful wellness community, you can do a little vacation there. And, uh, you know, I did an interview for PBS Next Avenue that included a lot of the information about Serenby, and I'll, I'll have a link on our episode guide to that. But I interviewed one of the residents, Janice Barton, and she did exactly that. She was working in Atlanta. She needed a getaway. She was really stressed and said, hey, I just want to be in fresh air and in the forest and, you know, near a river and, and all of those things. And so she took a very long uh, weekend and went down there and then wound up buying her forever home, which is where she now lives in Serenby. So, you know, you can, you can do that as well if you want to kind of check it out, but it's just a, it's a, just a gorgeous, beautiful place. And and I think what Steve and everybody at Serenby has done is just really wonderful. So a couple of things that I just want to mention before we get into our summer travel and our vacations is that first of all, our environments, you know, I talk about this a lot, and this is now the theme of my third book called A Family Caregiver Guide to Wellness, The Snug Home. And, you know, we don't think a lot about our environments and how much they impact our health and our wellness. And yet we know that's one of the seven key elements that I talk about that is part of our wellness programs and our wellness workshops around Me Time Monday, because they not only help us physically, but they help us emotionally. And a lot of this is tied again to what we call the ancient brain, kind of being in nature from hundreds of thousands and millions of years ago, being out on that African savanna and having the wide open spaces and the grasslands that showed us, okay, there's food sources, there's water sources, you know, the mosaic of trees. So we knew there was shelter from the sun or the rain or also shelter and protection from predators. So we could climb up in those trees to protect ourselves. Um, and, you know, being out in fresh air and the wide open, you know, wide open spaces, as I said, all of these things are still really embedded in our brains and in neuroscience. And so when we, we can replicate those things as much as possible, and particularly in our environments, it gives us a sense of calm. It gives us a soothing security, you know, all the things that we know we're, we're suffering from, we have a deficit in all of that in our lives. So I do a lot of work in this space now with well home design and just different assessments that we do for private clients to help them design their homes in a more wellness, you know, well-designed way. But also, as I said, I'm doing a lot of research and writing my next book on this. So I wanted to give you a little bit of sense of some of the research that I've come across that I think is really interesting. So one study showed that parents pass on their love of nature to their children. Okay, that, that probably makes a whole lot of sense. But what's really interesting is it really does start with those of us who are parents giving that love of nature to our children, you know, immersing them early on in kind of the wonderful things that you can find in nature. And I, I think back to my childhood and we did a lot of, you know, we would go up to here in Southern California, we're lucky because we're only about two hours out from going up to Big Bear and Lake Arrowhead and, you know, some places where you can kind of hike around and you've got forest area and all that. And we'd go fishing. And it was just a really like idyllic time. I think about that now and I think, when was the last time I went fishing? I need to get back to that. But really bringing your children into nature, I think is really important. The other thing is there was a study that showed that people who are closer to nature and have some kind of nature 
in their lives, whether it's nature walks or whatever you're doing, actually eat healthier. And it's because the, again, the neuroscience, our brains are triggered to recognize during those nature walks or those hikes or whatever it is, the food source, the greenery, or maybe it's the, you know, the, the colorful plants and things. And so when then you think about your own diet and your nutrition, you crave leafy greens, you crave some of those vegetables that are colorful. So it's very interesting. And there's a lot more science now that's going into this. We also know that children who grew up in a biophilic design community like a Serenby actually reduce their cellular aging. It's even better than exercise. And this is for children. This is what this one study was done on, but I think it also relates to us as adults. And that is that, you know, if we can lower our levels of oxidative stress, which we get from being in, you know, kind of noisy, cramped, you know, high traffic areas and where we're feeling that stress during our daytime, we want to lower that because that's the underlying cause for cellular change and damage to our cells that leads to things like cancers and Alzheimer's years and years later. So we don't see it immediately, but it's building up. And this is one of the things as a gerontologist, you know, I don't just look at people who are older. I look at what are your lifestyle choices from when you were a little kid and your parents were helping you with those choices all the way through your life. And what are the things then that are going to make us healthier, happier, and live longer? So just a few things to think about in terms of kind of well-home design and being in nature and bringing that nature maybe inside if you can't get it outside. But, you know, talking more about our well-home design news, I mentioned, you know, vacations. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about something that you may or may not have heard of called respitality. So when we were talking earlier about self-care, I like to think of respite care, which is really the, the care that you can get. You can actually, there's a service that you can hire where somebody will come in and be a companion for your loved one. And that's the respite that you get from being the full-time 24-7 caregiver sometimes for our loved ones. So getting that little break, I call them wellcations. Now, wellcations is a trend that's happening in the travel and hospitality area where people are going to resorts to de-stress. You know, we're not going necessarily to travel around and look at museums and all kinds of other things. We just want ways to de-stress. So wellcations have a broader definition to the outside world. But for me and for the work that I do with caregivers, I like to call these little respite breaks. And even if it's a five minute, get five minutes for yourself, I call them mini wellcations. So that's my new, my new terminology for you. So respitality is really interesting. This was started years and years ago actually for special needs parents. And it was started by the United Cerebral Palsy Association where they started making deals with hotels where the hotel would allow for the United Cerebral Palsy Association to bring in a care worker who could care for the child with cerebral palsy while the family caregiver, the parent or the rest of the family were able to go enjoy things like maybe going to the pool or maybe they're near a resort and they could, you know, go to Disney World for the day and still know that their loved one was cared for and they could be with them when they got back to the hotel room, but not having to, you know, leave them behind or not having to give up the vacation altogether. So respitality has been a really great service. It's been out there for a while again, within our special needs parents population. But now it's making its way into senior care, which is what we like because we've got a lot lot more parents that we're going to be caring for, even than children over the next couple of decades. So one of the things that you'll note is that a lot of assisted living and even memory care communities out there 
offer something called respitality. So what this means is, let's just say that you want to take a family vacation to Florida. I'm just going to use that as an example to see Disney World. But you don't want to leave mom behind. She's, you know, maybe she's living at home alone. You're a little worried about her. There really isn't anyone that you feel comfortable and she doesn't want to have maybe somebody coming into the home or whatever. So rather than put that vacation off, what you can do is two things. One is you can find an assisted living or memory care near her where she lives. And, you know, it's even like a test drive to see if she even likes that community, maybe for the future, if she ever needed to move. But it's a place where obviously she's going to get great professional care, but she's also going to have her peers that she can do activities with and talk to and, and those kinds of things. So that's one option. The other option is if your parent is more able to kind of make the trip, whether that's airline flight, which is really tough these days as we all hear on the news headlines, or maybe it's the road trip or or wherever you're going to get to your vacation. If they're able to physically make that trip with you, you can bring them with you. And then you can find an assisted living or memory care that's near the resort. And a lot of these resorts now, uh, the concierge will help you because they've got partnerships. So they will find you one that's really right near the resort, might even be next door or down the street. And therefore, again, your your parent would be staying in in a separate place, but at least during the day, they would be cared, you know, during the day they'd be cared for and at night or whatever, and you can still have dinner and still do things with them. So you wouldn't have to be away from them. So just a couple of things to think about with respitality and to give you a a sense of what that would cost a lot. This is a national average, but a lot of them cost about $155 a day. So it's the same as a hotel room. And then some of them are doing discounts right now because we're trying to get people back to doing travel, particularly domestically. And so they're offering, like, if you do five days, you get the six day free or whatever. So look for some of those packages and look for some of those discounts because there's also a lot of senior discounts. Make sure you're using your veterans discounts, your ARP discounts that your loved one, your older loved one has or whatever. But think about respitality. And I just want to do a shout out to Scotland, not just because I have Scottish heritage, but also because Scotland has really led the world in a lot of the respitality services. And in fact, Scotland was has something called respitality, which is run by a charity called Shared Care Scotland. And they are in partnership with the Scottish government. And what they do is they connect the local caregiving organizations with, they, by the way, they call it carers, care organizations. They don't, caregiving is carers or caregivers or carers over in the UK and in Scotland. So they connect these local caregiving organizations with hospitality, tourism, and leisure businesses. And then they give a discount or even sometimes free hospitality or care to the loved one when you're planning your travel and planning your vacation. So it's a great example of maybe where we might get to at some point, because right now it's a lot of -of out-of-pocket expense still for families. But I think it's, you know, it's showing that there's a lot more attention that's going on in terms of traveling with our older loved ones. So along those lines, I also wanted to mention to you something that I, I teased you with up front, which is virtual travel services. Now, This is actually, I am seeing a lot of different companies, startups, you know, as well as other companies, but they're really becoming huge hits with older adults. And particularly, I think, since the pandemic. So one of the things that we know is that as we get older, it physically gets a little bit tough to travel. I mean, let's face it, right now, when I hear that I might have to do some business travel for a speaking engagement or, you know, a conference or or something else I might be doing, I literally start to cringe. I start to have stress. Because I know my last trip, I spent 18 hours in the airport trying to get home. I wound up 
finally getting home at 3.30 a.m., but it was like, you know, my goodness, it was like, where's Waldo? I mean, I was all over the country trying to catch connections and all kinds of stuff. So everything that we're hearing about right now with airline travel is not enticing and certainly not for an older adult where it's going to be a lot more stressful, a lot more wear and tear on somebody who physically doesn't have the kind of stamina to stand around in lines and the patients, you know, and, and, you know, the dehydration. I mean, there's so many things to think about when you have to wait and get on and off planes and all that kind of stuff. So the airline travel is not looking really super attractive for older adults. Sometimes road trips will work, train trips, cruises, certainly. And by the way, I have a whole article on this on how to travel with an older loved one in all those different you know, respects on the episode guide page. So you can check that out. And I give you tips on how to travel, you know, again, on cruises and other places. But what's happening in this virtual travel that I really love is that if you physically can't go somewhere, it shouldn't mean that you can't experience it. And that's what this virtual travel is all about. Now, in the assisted living and memory care facilities, there are a lot of virtual reality companies now that have made deals to come in and with the, you know, headsets, the virtual reality headsets, they take groups of, you know, older adults on trips to different places and, you know, maybe even travel back to your hometown. Google actually did a really great experiment with veterans a few years ago with Vietnam vets who could not get to a parade on Veterans Day. So they did a virtual reality parade where they could experience the parade and feel like they were immersed in it, even though they weren't physically there. So there's a lot of great stuff that's going on with virtual reality. But I will say one thing about virtual reality, just a you know, quick FYI, as we all know, for older adults, sometimes it can be very disorienting to have the headset on. If it's a large kind of heavier headset, it's not comfortable. You know, you don't have the neck strength necessarily. It strains the eyes. It can, you know, be a little bit, almost create a little bit of agitation or just not be comfortable. So you want to be cognizant of that. It's not to say everybody will feel that, but you just want to be sensitive that to older adults, you know, if you're a gamer, virtual reality headsets are like you could walk around all day with that thing on your head, right? But for an older adult, it's not so easy. So the services I'm going to tell you about don't require virtual reality to immerse you. And here's what they do. You do need an internet connection. So your loved one would, you know, you could get them set up if they aren't already, but they would need to be on the internet so they can access these trips. And then what they do is they sign up just as they would for a regular, you know, tourist trip. Like um, I, I know my mom and stepdad love these, talk, I think they were called talk travel trips or whatever. They love that group. They did such a great job, particularly, you know, with European travel and all that. Anyway, you sign up just as you would for any other tour and you have a tour guide and then you get to see, and there's other people across the country and it's all dedicated. Most of these are dedicated for seniors. So it's all older adults. So a lot of your peers are joining. Now, sometimes it could be family though, family travel. So you're going to have different generations. And then you go online at the designated time and the tour guide could be in Paris and she's taking you through the Louvre and she's explaining, you know, the Venus de Milo and the Mona Lisa and all these other things. And it's, it's exactly like if you were there literally in person, but obviously, you know, you're not, they have a, the tour guide has a GoPro on their head, I think, and they use, you know, their smartphone and other things, but it is like being there and you get to interact with the other people on the tour because people are making comments in the chat or even asking questions of the tour guide. And there was one that was recently done in Napa where they did a wine tasting. And what they did is they sent the wines to the people on the tour. So the older adults ahead of time. And then when they had the sommelier come in and do the wine tasting, you could 
uncork your wine and get it poured and do the wine tasting along with everybody else. So these are fantastic, really, solutions, I think, for allowing our older adults to still have that anticipation and excitement of going on a trip and not having to hassle with checking into a hotel, getting on and off an airplane, (laughs) packing their bags. They can do it from the leisure of their home. And I think they're just really great solutions. So I'm going to have some of the companies that I know of that we're going to have links to those. So like Wowzitude is a great one. Hey Go, Discover Live. A lot of these companies are starting to do this. So I just wanted to make sure you guys knew about this because I think it's really great. Some other things in terms of Traveling with older adults, you know, if you have an older adult that wants to travel on their own, they're still active. There's a special, it's not from Airbnb, but they use an Airbnb type model and it's just for seniors. So it's older seniors who are opening up their homes. They don't necessarily leave unless, you know, you work that out with them. But they could actually be your host. And so you could go to Ireland and stay with an Irish couple and do an Airbnb type, you know, kind of uh, vacation. And it's called Freebird Club. So it started in Ireland. That's why I brought Ireland up. And it's seniors hosting seniors. So I'm going to have that link as well. We certainly know that for veterans, particularly our older veterans who want to get to see the memorials in Washington, D.C., Vietnam vet, Korean vets, uh, like my stepdad was, we know we only have a handful of our World War II veterans alive, but the Gary Sinise Foundation is also doing a program called Soaring Valor, where they actually provide free airfare to a veteran of World War II and a companion to visit the World War II Museum in New Orleans. And by the way, if you have not seen that World War II Museum in New Orleans, it's on my list that I recommend to people. I've seen it. I want to go back because I didn't get a chance to to be there enough and, and, uh, you know, get through the whole museum in in just one day. But it is one of the best museums, I think, that I've ever, ever attended and, and ever seen. So if you get a chance to be in New Orleans, you definitely put that on your list of things to do. And particularly for, again, for older vets. And then if you have medical travel or if there is an emergency, I wanted to give you a couple quick tips. And again, this is all going to be in the article I'm going to have on the website are on our episode guide page, which is on caregivingclub.com backslash podcast. But for instance, we think that Medicare, our loved ones have Medicare, they're taken care of, not internationally. If you're traveling internationally, your Medicare um, services and benefits will not work. You have to have a supplemental plan. So make sure that you, you and your loved ones know about that. There's also, again, if you're traveling as a family for medical emergencies for a loved one, the Fisher House supports veterans families. So if your loved one's being treated at a VA, you can get free hotel stays at the Fisher Houses, which are right near the VA. Similarly, the American Cancer Society does this with the Hope Lodges, where they have deals with local hotels. So if you're getting treated at the Mayo Clinic or at one of the cancer centers across the country, then the American Cancer Society will hook you up with a Hope Lodge discount or free stay. The Farrah Fawcett Foundation which is run by Elena Hamilton Stewart, who I interviewed for my first book, but they do incidental support. So for instance, you know, if you're just traveling with a loved one for medical care, the parking sometimes at these medical facilities could be like upwards of $40 a day. Well, you know, on a fixed income, that's tough, right? So they'll pay the parking fees or they'll pay for some lodging or maybe other transportation to get you there. So it's all in support of the family caregivers who are 
caring for and supporting a loved one who has, in this instance, it would be cancer patients. And then there's special rates at participating hotels like Marriott and Hyatt do some great rates for medical travel. And then don't forget the medical flight. So MedJets or Global Rescue, it's a membership where you sign up, you pay a membership fee annually. But then if you need a medevac, you know, you need a flight to get somebody to the Mayo Clinic and or whatever it is, then you get a very, very much discounted rate on those particular flights if you're part of this these membership programs. So you can check those out. Again, that'll all be in my article on the episode guide page. So now let's turn to our Me Time Monday wellness hack. And we're going to talk about how green helps us heal and helps us be healthier. I'm Sherry Snelling and welcome to our Me Time Monday wellness hack. This episode's wellness hack, we pick another color from our year of living colorfully theme, and our color is the calming, rejuvenating feelings we get from green. Green is a powerful color. From an emotional standpoint, green makes most people feel refreshed and relaxed. It falls into the cool category when we talk about color psychology. In fact, it is almost in the middle of the color spectrum, making it one of the colors we see the longest even as our eyes grow older. Because it is considered a cooler color, as opposed to warmer colors such as oranges and reds, our eyes do not have to adjust to see green because it uses a shorter wavelength. Green has been shown to calm the body, reduce respiration and lower blood pressure, which is why surgeons often wear green-blue scrubs in operating rooms to calm patients. Scientists have also explored green in terms of optimism and hope. In one study, more people were likely to recall positive words written in green, leading researchers to theorize that green carries more positive emotional connotations. A different study published in Psychology and Aging found that hues of green are considered the most optimistic colors, especially as we age. In another study, participants exposed to the color green experienced increased feelings of hope and decreased fear of failure, kind of how we feel when we find a four-leaf clover. Now, green is also the color of some of our favorite pop culture characters, especially from early childhood and our teen years, when our brains were still imprinting our feelings about good and bad influences. So our cast of green characters includes Kermit the Frog, the Grinch, who grows a heart in the end, the Green Hornet, the Hulk, and certainly the wise Jedi Master Yoda from the Star Wars movies. Green influences in childhood may mean better health later in life. One study found growing up near nature can reduce cellular aging and maybe even more beneficial than exercise in children. While another study found that kids and adults who regularly get out into nature eat more healthfully, especially leafy greens and vegetables. Beyond childhood, green color tones spark more positive effects in older adults when it comes to memory and recall. And as we age, our vision starts to change because at age 60, the pupils need three times the light needed when we were age 20. The eye translates light into colors and the human retina identifies colors between 400 and 700 nanometers. So with the color green located at about 550 nanometers, it is the easiest color for the retina to perceive. This makes hues of greens the best color choice for older eyes, whether it is home design, clothing, or marketing messages. 
Now, green is often associated with being outside, yet we spend 95% of our time indoors and we have all kinds of technology now indoors that has only evolved over the last 100 years. So things like air conditioning and TVs and video games and computers and washing machines and dishwashers and even our electrical lighting. Research has shown that staying indoors, especially during daylight hours, makes us less well. Now in 1858, Central Park was built in the middle of the fast growing New York City. And that's what this picture is if you're watching us on video. While we think of Central Park as a place for meeting friends for lunch at one of the many restaurants or taking a walk or riding boats on the lake or playing an impromptu touch football game, it was actually built for getting the city's population outside into fresh air and what was called the Poor Man's Lung Project. Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed and built Central Park, said it was the lungs of the city to fight the rampant disease in unsanitary and cramped living quarters, especially among the city's poor populations. With 39 million square feet of trees that oxygenate the air in Central Park, or what we call forest bathing, it was the largest public health initiative ever undertaken for that time. When it comes to scientific studies, researchers found that children exposed to green spaces had lower levels of oxidative stress. In fact, green spaces appear to have a special quality that is lacking in other public areas. Contact with green space can provide restoration from stress and mental fatigue. This so-called restorative quality of nature is backed up by results of national surveys in several countries, which have consistently shown that people consider contact with nature one of the most powerful ways to obtain relief from stress, regardless of your culture or where you grew up. Now, there is a term in wellness often associated with the color green, and it is called biophilia, which means love of life or love of nature in Greek. Research on healthy living shows more greenery in both outdoor and indoor environments can improve cardiovascular health, reduce depression, and increase mental health. Researchers at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health found in a study of 100,000 women that those who lived near more green spaces had a 12% lower mortality rate than those living in locations with fewer plants and greenery. Another study found patients in a hospital room with a nature view on trees and greenery were discharged twice as fast and needed less pain medication than those in a standard hospital room with no windows. And yet another study found a decreased risk of dementia and Alzheimer's in adults over age 60 who lived in biophilic designed environments. When it comes to our homes, green can also help us overcome seasonal affective disorder. During the colder winter months, when our landscapes are void of the energetic reds and oranges and pinks and yellows and yes, and greens of spring and summer, the life-affirming color of green provides an energetic, life-affirming feeling, even if it is a perennial plant or green couches or pillows. So why is green so powerful in calming us down? Well, the healing and comforting color of green goes back to our beginnings. It all has to do with the neuroscience of our ancient brains and our five senses of sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. 
Over 100,000s of years ago, maybe even millions of years ago, we lived on the African savanna. There were wide open spaces and we could see any predators or prey approaching. There were also green grassy areas that let us know there were food and water sources. And the mosaic of green leafy trees gave us shelter from sun and rain and protection from predators where we could climb to safety. And then there was fresh air, blue skies, and light and dark periods of night and day that set our senses and our body clocks for health to this kind of living environment. To feel secure and stress-free, we need to replicate this ancient environment so our home designs bring about the optimal wellness we felt on that savanna. And by bringing in green plants to oxygenate the air that also remind us of living and growing, or by painting a wall a lush green or using green decor, we create a healthier, happy, and more hopeful place to live. We hope you enjoyed this Me Time Monday wellness hack. Each episode features a new hack. You can also learn about the Me Time Monday workshop and my upcoming book at caregivingclub.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Caregiving Club on Air. Please listen to us on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts and other listening channels. And check out all the resources and article links on our episode guide page at caregivingclub.com podcast tab. And email us at podcast at caregivingclub.com if you have any questions or comments. Take care and stay well.